0: So today, uh, I've been working on, working on this part of the way of Jesus for a long time, and, and here's the thing about this particular topic that we're going to talk about today. I knew a year ago this one was going to be hard. Uh, not hard like in the content or the subject matter, it's just hard, because there's a, there's a predominant theme in the life of Jesus, I mean a massive theme in the life of Jesus, and, and yet we don't have a, a, a verse of Scripture to break it down with, but it's all over his earthly ministry. And so if you remember the way of Jesus, we, we have discovered this isn't some, I don't. I want to make sure everybody hears at least once at some point, this isn't like some secret, this isn't like any, me or the staff have unlocked some secret tool. Uh, it's just we have discovered, really highlighted six, I would say, major themes in Jesus' life. And, and here they are, Jesus put the kingdom first, He always spoke the truth, and we're going to do sermons on each of these all the way into May. Uh, He he taught us to practice the presence of God, engage my neighbor, we're going to talk about that next week, Um, and then find a tribe and then live free. Now, tribe, a group, a a purpose, a group of people, a band of brothers, And, and so we're going to talk about what that is today, and specifically calling it How Jesus Moved Through Life. And this is kind of how Jesus, I think Jesus moved through life. So if you've got a Bible, let's go to Matthew 4. Uh, the first gospel, uh, this, this passage of scripture, Matthew 4 verse 18 uh, through 22 has always meant a lot to me. A lot of my doctoral research went around this many years ago and I spent a lot of time unpacking this thing. And, and so here, here is, here is the, 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 the thing with Jesus. We don't You're going to see today, um, we don't have just one passage to break down to talk about the fact that Jesus spent, think about it, you guys, Jesus spent the majority of his earthly ministry with 12 people. I mean, he really did. He spent the majority of his time with 12 people, but yet... We kind of have to piece that together. So let's, here's kind of a, the way it started. And I really didn't know where to, we're going to show, I'm going to show you a lot of scripture today. Um, so if you've got a pen and a piece of paper, you're going to need that to go back. But So this is the context. Jesus is just now, he's been tempted, he's been baptized, he's starting to begin his ministry. And in verse 18 of, of the first gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verse 18, it says, now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left their boat and, and their father, and they followed him. In the Gospel of Mark, Almost the exact same almost word for word the exact same account so again there 's not just one big passage so we 're going to talk about why this is the case but before we do that i want to, to give you i 'm just going to give you a, a little aside this morning give, I'm going to give you a little tool uh, to help you understand how to interpret your Bible better you good with that because it 's important for us to know how to, how to when you come up on a, a passage of scripture right when you come up on a passage of scripture uh, it's important to know when when you see a theme like this, we, nobody can argue that Jesus spent most of his time with 12 people. But what does that mean, and how does it work? So when you encounter an overarching theme in the Bible, but there's not just one passage, what do you do? What do you do with that? How do you become a faithful Bible student so that you know what God is doing and what God is up to? I'm going to give you two, before we even get into this, just two foundational principles that as you read the Bible, you've you got to know these and you've got to settle them in your heart. And the first is give the Bible the final say, right? All, the Bible always gets the final say, right? You've heard me say many times, I teach my boys all the time, that we never bend the Scriptures. The Scriptures bend us. We, we bow to the Scriptures. We conform to the Scriptures. Whether you understand it all or not, you know, we conform to the Scriptures. So when you encounter a topic or a theme in the Bible, all, the Bible gets the final authority. But here's, here's another key truth I want you to understand. When you encounter a thing like this, when you encounter this major theme in Jesus' life, but there's no passage of what to do, what do you do? Then I would say study the drone view, what I call the drone view. We know drones, right? You know those things that your kids buy and then you get to wreck them? Uh, I mean, I've never done that. Y'all have probably done that. I'm just saying they're, they're fun. What does the drone view do? Well, the drone view is the overarching themes of Scripture. Let me tell you why this matters. Let me give you a perfect example. We, we do not have uh, just a bunch of verses in some book of the Bible on a theology of war so how do we get a theology of war we have to put it together using multiple verses we, we don't the Bible doesn't give us just one long passage on abortion so what do we do we have to create a theology of human life you right we, we don't, we, there's all kinds of topics in, that, that life gives us that's in the Bible, but there's not just one teaching on it. And that's all over the place. So if you're, you're going to encounter that over and over and over again. And so you've got to be able to, to piece scriptures together. And that's what it really means, by the way, to be, you'll hear this church word, if you hang around church long enough, uh, what it means to be expository. Expository is not reading. Let me tell you something. Man, I have fought tooth and nail for this for 30 years, right? I'm telling you. Uh, and I'm right. It's okay if you're wrong. But I'm just telling you. You can read. people. There's this theme that happened in my 20s that went out into churches that, that expository Bible interpretation was verse by verse by verse by verse. That is a form of it. But I can read straight through the Gospel of John and be a heretic. I, I can go straight through it. What does it mean to be a good expositor? And you can be an expositor, too. That's not just reserved for preachers. To be an expositor means that the Bible can never mean what it never meant, right? The Bible can never mean what it never meant, that a verse can never say what it hasn't said. So what you have to do is you have to study it in the context, and the context drives the idea. So I can take one verse out of Ephesians and I can still expose it. It means to lift out what was already there, right? To lift out what was already there and unpack what was already there. So if what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the drone view of, of, of this idea of, of what it means that Jesus had this dominant theme of spending his, most of his life, lived out most of his calling with a small group of people. So let's start with why. Right? We just see that he, he started with a group of people. Why did he do it? Well, I'll tell you, here's the first truth. Jesus believed in life up close. When you, when you look at Jesus' lifestyle, Jesus didn't do life from a distance, and neither should you. We weren't, we weren't created to be lone rangers. There's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian, Right? Jesus believed in in life up close. So he calls his first disciples. He didn't have to do that, but he does it. He does it right out of the gate. And so let me give you a couple of foundational points as to how we know that. Why 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 is that statement true? Why is it true that Jesus believed in life up close? We're looking at Jesus' lifestyle rhythms. How do we know that Jesus believed in life up close? Well, the first truth is that Jesus did not birth his ministry alone. Did you notice that? Don't you notice that Jesus could have, he could have done it by himself. Don't you think he was capable? I think Jesus was fully capable of doing it by himself. I think he could have done it by himself all, all he wanted to, but he chose not to. Right out of the gate, he calls Peter and the brothers, and he says, come follow me. And they actually do, right? And it's, it's a fascinating concept of, of he, he just chooses to go about it with others, I'll give you another supporting statement of why Jesus believed in life up close. Jesus launched kingdom movements in groups. And I can prove it to you. Jesus launched kingdom movements in groups or in bands. He he didn't just start his own ministry when he sent others out. Do you remember? Uh, look at look at Luke chapter ten, verse one here on the screen. Right. It says, "Now after this, the Lord appointed seventy others, and he sent them how in pairs." ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come so he sent out forerunners but he didn't send them out by his, by themselves and he gave them very specific instructions he also did the same thing at a different time with the 12 uh, disciples in mark chapter 6 verse 7 uh, this is what jesus it says that jesus summoned the 12 and he began to send them out in pairs and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits Jesus believed in life up close, right? He, 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 didn't, he didn't launch his own ministry by himself. He didn't send the disciples out by themselves. And in fact, here's another supporting truth of why he believed in life up close. Jesus did not weather heavy seasons alone. If you look at his lifestyle, one of the, you see the humanity of Jesus in a really beautiful way. There's a time when Jesus knows what's about to happen to him. He's going to go to the cross to die for my sins and for yours. And he knows what it's going to be like. And they really don't. And so it says in Matthew 26, look at what it says. It says that Jesus went with them. That's the the disciples. He took them to to the olive grove called Gethsemane. He took Peter, James, and John. By the way, that's the inner circle, right? Don't miss that. Jesus had the 12, and then he had Peter, James, and John, and then he had John, right? Listen, it's okay to have close friends. that's, that's 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 how I think God means for it to be. So he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He did not go into that heavy season by himself. So you're seeing a drone view of of how Jesus walked through. Look at what Luke 22 says about Jesus. And Jesus said to them, you just saw it a minute ago in the video, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus could have done it any way he wanted to do it that night. If you knew that you were about to go to the cross in in a few hours, what would you do? I'll tell you what Jesus did. He gathered his closest friends. He didn't do ministry alone. He believed in life up close. It's a major rhythm of how he did life. But what we also see is not only did Jesus do that, it must have been so predominant in his his ministry way that that the early church continued it. So the early church continued with life up close. And we see this all the time, especially in the book of Acts. You see it it pointed out in all of the the letters. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it's a very famous passage. Uh, Theologians and seminary professors have broken this down for ages and ages and ages. It said, and all the believers, I put it on, it's a little bit small, but uh, it says, all the believers met together in one place, and they shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshipped together at the temple each day. They met in so don't just don't get mad. It's on Sundays, by the way. They did it. It sounds like seven days a week, right? So you know, if you ever just get, I got to go to church. No, you we get to go to church, right? They went seven days a week. They worshipped together at the temple each day. Met in homes for the Lord's supper, and they shared their meals with great joy and with generosity. The early church did this. The early New Testament church lived life up close together, right? So this was a pattern of how we're supposed to live out the life of Christ. And the, the bigger question is why? Why did they do it? That, that's the question I always ask myself. Why, why is this the case? Well, you got to understand something. You really can't miss this. You, when, when you look at, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus makes his presence known, when he makes his intentions known, when he tells everybody, this is what I'm going to be about, they ask him, how do we pray? Meaning we don't know how to pray. That's not what they're saying. We've heard you pray. How do we pray like that is what they're asking. How do we pray like that? And when Jesus started to t- teach them the model prayer, it, I, it was, I, there's nowhere in, in the Bible that I see any evidence that, that the, the, the Lord's prayer, as we say, is some vain repetition that you pay pray like some magic thing to happen. It's a model. And if you break it down, there's a model in it. And right out of the gate, what does Jesus say? Our Father in, who is in heaven, hallowed or holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done Where? On earth as it is in heaven. You see, Jesus prayed and taught us to pray that the kingdom of God is supposed to be made manifest. It's supposed to come alive in people. That's what he did. He ushered the kingdom of God and he did it in people. Where did he send the Holy Spirit? To a building? No, into you. He sent himself into us. It's always been about that. So when you look at what he was doing, he wanted to see the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Notice what he didn't say. He, he didn't say, I came to see the kingdom come in institutions. He didn't say that. Now, I didn't say that we shouldn't have great theological institutions. I didn't say, don't, don't, hear, don't, don't say something, I don't, don't read into it what I didn't say. I didn't say that Church buildings are bad. I'm just telling you, Jesus didn't die for brick and mortar. Jesus died for people. He died for people because he's living inside people. So why? Why is it that Jesus has this lifestyle pattern of spending life up close? Why did the early church have a pattern of spending life up close? Well, the drone view tells us a bigger story. That God made us for one another. God made us for one another. That's the reason. Have you ever picked up on this little little insight? Think about how creation started. In Genesis chapter 2, what do we see that God did? He called everything good. Made the skies, they're good. Made the beasts, they're good. I told the water, you can only come this far, and it's good. And then he made man, and he said, oh, it's not good. It's not good that he's by himself. So, right out of the gate, God creates man and woman. They were created together. Did you go, go to the very end of the Bible, to Revelation? Go to the end of the canon. And what do you see in Revelation? That God gathers all the people to themselves. And there's a great banquet feast. And everything it says, I will walk among them, and I will be their people, and they will be, they will be my people, and I will be their God. And so the Bible is literally starting and finishing with relationships. So, if you don't like people, man, you are in trouble. Right? I mean, seriously. Now, God's given you room. Some of you are, you know, in, in insane introverts. You know, seven minutes a week with people is all you need, right? And that's six too many minutes, right? And that's okay. Don't, don't beat yourself up for that. You know, then you got people like me, you know, that redefine extrovert, right? You know, part of my mission in life is to make quiet people really nervous. And that's what I do. And I, I work for it. I do. I, I'm, I'm not an extrovert. I'm on the bleeding edge of extrovert, right? It drives introverts bananas. So we all have room to move, but we were made for each other. God made us for each other. And all you have to do is fast forward into the New Testament. Over the summer, uh, last year, I did a series called Church. And I spent weeks in the one another statements. Remember those? Forgive one another, love one another, have tolerance for one another, be easy on one another. There's all these one another, one another, one another, one another, and inside the one another's, you find a church. You find a rhythm of church, of how we're to address each other and how, how we're to, to, to treat one another. It's all in there. We're bookended by relationships. We're made for one another. And I believe that's why Jesus launched out right out of the gate with this idea. But the, the, another, another key truth behind that is God uses people to shape people. So if you're taking notes, write that down. Why? I ask you the question, why? Why did Jesus do this? God made us for one another, but also God uses his people to shape his people. Have you ever noticed that? You know, Jesus even said in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, what, what good is it if you love people that love you? Anybody do that right? You want to find a way to love people? Get amongst messed up people. That's where the, the, the fireworks really start. And I think that's a big part of what we do in church, you know? You got to get alongside each other. One time, uh, Winston Churchill, they, uh, the, the, the House of Commons is a very tight building in, in the U.K. and England, London, and, and, it, and, and so it's always where they have to sandwich in just like this, and so when you argue, you don't always argue across the room. Sometimes you argue right there, you know, and somebody said, we need to build a bigger House of Commons, and Churchill said, oh, no. No, the fact that they know they got to come back in here tomorrow and sit right beside that person makes them work it out, Right? One of the things I love about so many of you at Clearview is you've gone to church here 15, 20, some of you 30 years or even more. And you haven't just gone through life together. You've gone through death together. You've gone through divorces together. You've gone through walking with one another with wayward children together. You have stories on each other and dirt on each other. I can see it in your eyes when you talk to each other. And you don't tell me what the dirt is, and I don't really want to know. But I think it's cool that you know it. You've got inside stuff on each other. You know patterns about each other. Friends, you don't get that. Hopping churches. You just don't. There's something about planting yourself in a group of people and saying, I'm going to love you anyway. I'm going to walk with you anyway, and I'm going to choose to give grace when I don't understand anyway. When I started out my ministry in the, my, in my, you know, right around the age of 20, my list of non-negotiables was about 72 feet long, right? At the age of 50, my non-negotiables were like, okay, is it heresy? Okay, no. All right, then. I, I think the rest of it's human nature, and let's just figure it out. <laughs> I do have some non-negotiables, but that list has shrunk over time. Because I want to know, I can't, I can't love you and you can't love me if we choose to spend our time apart. There's something about being in the people of God, and I think Jesus was on to something there. That, he, that we, we learn to love one another in, a, in this thing. Because I'll tell you something, friends, this is what I'm learning. Marriage taught me this but I'm learning it the older I get. I first learned it with marriage, but I'm learning it now, even in better ways and longer ways. You know how you learn to love people? Mileage. Mileage. That's how you learn to love people. You got to go through miles together you got to walk together through the pains and the hurts and even the disappointments. And I don't know why so many Christians look at me funny when I say things like this, but you hang around me long enough and you are going to be wildly disappointed. Y'all don't really know whether to laugh at that or not. You kind of, I can see in your head, you should laugh. Because you you need to, I'm not joking. You hang around me long enough and you are going to, in fact, for some of you, you didn't have to hang out long at all. Till you saw things that I don't really like that. You know what? I see those things in you too. That goes both ways, Bubba. But that's just life. It's the way it works. Jesus got in there with 12 dudes, and they figured it out. And Peter went nuts sometimes, and Jesus said, Oh, come on, put the sword down, <laughs> all right? And there were times that John the Baptist is like, are you really the one? Like, I mean, I was the forerunner. And I'm not really sure. And, you know, he was doubting Jesus. And Thomas says, well, I'm not going to believe anybody touch the hands. There are all kinds of wild personalities in that band of people. See, I think God uses all of us to shape all of us. And so I think that's why Paul was getting at that very truth in Ephesians. When Ephesians 4, uh, it's on the screen there. He's he's talking about the church, and he says, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, that's the word He keeps using, body, being fit and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. Meaning, you've got a role to play. Your role causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love, right? It's hard to be a calf if you don't have a knee. It's hard to be an elbow if you don't have a shoulder. It's hard to have balance if you don't have a left foot or a right one. I remember my uncle one time when I was a little boy, he lost his... um, his little finger, and a, it, it just, it, it was a weird accident, and he was okay. It just they ended up having to cut, cut it off, and he said, you know what was so strange about that? I had my hand was out of balance for like a year. I couldn't, it was, it literally, I had no idea the balancing act that this thing played in my life, Right? It's, it's amazing how much different. That we're, that we're even in God's design when he made the human body. We work together. And then he modeled the church in that same way that we're all working together as each point supplies the proper support. So the question with why, why did he do it? And, and I have one other question I ask in my study time. of Why would Jesus spend so much of his time With a group of people. And why did the early church continue that same rhythm? And and why do we see it happening even today? Here's what it proves to me. You ready for this? This is what it proves to me. It proves that the kingdom of God is relational before it's organizational. That's what it proves to me. The kingdom of God is relational before it's organizational. Now, don't hear me say that I don't believe in organization. Well, of course I do. You have to have that. But Jesus could have formed his ministry any way he wanted. He could have set up the kingdom any way he wanted. And he chose to set it up through relationships. And you even see it in the way that the New Testament letters are written. Have you ever noticed that the New Testament letters, have you ever noticed? Just go back and watch. Read all the introduction of the New Testament letters, and here's what you'll find. You'll never find that the New Testament letters are written to a location where a bunch of people meet. They are written to a bunch of people who meet in a location. You see the difference? The New Testament letters are not, they're written to people who gather together at different locations, most of the time houses. Do you know that... Famous theologians that are way in heaven now, like Gordon Fee, actually believe that the church at Corinth was around 50 to 60 people. It feels big in your mind. Most of these were, they were house little churches, little bands, little tribes of people. The New Testament letters even speak to the fact that the kingdom of God was built on a relational vehicle and not a building. And I don't want you to hear me say, don't, don't hear me say that I don't believe in church buildings. Well, I do. I mean, it's a lot better in here than sitting out on a, this morning. It's, I think there's a north wind. That's not fun. You know, it's better than sitting in the rain. I get it. But I'm telling you, the kingdom of God is first relational before it's organizational. It really is. And I think evangelicals have a lot to learn from this. And to be honest with you, if I could just for a minute, and this is just my opinion, but I'm a loud one, and I, I believe that in some ways we've missed it here. I really do. Because I want you to look back. I've been in ministry about 30 years now. And I—in my ministry tra- trajectory has been in the age of Churches and church growth and campuses and all of those things, and it's not bad and it's not good, but I want you to look at the end result. If you, if you look back at the last, let's go back to 1900. If you go from 1900 until today, in America, we poured all of our resources into dirt and locations, even with mega churches. And even with mega churches, we still lost Our culture. And that's a fact. We still lost our culture. It's just living. I heard one church historian one time say, I can't remember the name, but he said, America is the test case that you can be the land of a million churches and still lose your culture. That's just the truth. Did we get it wrong? No. I'm just saying, from the beginning of time, when Jesus started his ministry, it was never about a location. Not once. Not once. It was always about people. It was always about people. And that's why he models that right out of the gate. I don't think that Jesus ever intended the the church, so to speak, to look like this. That was never the idea of the church. You know what that is, don't you? That's the Y'all come and listen, model. That's the southern version. Y'all come and hear. Last time I checked, Jesus didn't say come and hear. He said what? Go tell. There's a place for people gathering and listening to the word of God. I'm all for it. I mean, it pays my bills, and I'm happy for that. That was funny. Y'all didn't think it was funny. I thought it was funny. I'm all for it. Is there a place for it? Absolutely. Does it have meaning? 100%. Is it meaningful? 100%. 100%. But Christianity was never meant to be contained under brick and mortar and call it a day. It was never meant to do that. That's not the idea of the kingdom of God. That's a part of the kingdom of God. I'll tell you where the kingdom of God is found. You want to see? Here we go. This is where the kingdom of God is found, right there. That's the kingdom of God right there. That's the go and tell version. That's Trey Hill about to get shocked in the middle, I think. That's Jamie down there in the left corner trying to figure out how to use a chainsaw. He's missing the left arm. It didn't go well. You could tell. it. Uh, right? That's the, you want to see the kingdom of God? Here you go. Here's the kingdom of God. Look at this. Keep going. That's the kingdom of God. People executing a calling. It looks also like this. Look at this next one. It looks like that right there. That's the go in the tell model. That's the go in the tell model. It looks a lot like, like this. It looks a lot like that. People going to people that are never, ever, 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 ever going to come here. Do you, do you think everybody today at Meridies or First Watch has clear view on their mind? I promise you they don't. Why would they? They don't know Jesus. Go and tell. And Jesus sent them out in bands that looked like this, that looked like people going and and, and rescuing and serving and doing missions and doing all of those things together. And Jesus offered us a place in that. He chose to live life up close. And at the end of his ministry the last thing he said to us in the flesh was this. Jesus said he came to his disciples and he says, "I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore go. Don't stay. Go." And make what? Disciples, not converts. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, this is the part of the Great Commission that, that we, we, we always tend to, to, to look right over. Because Baptist and all kinds of evangelicals, beyond just Baptist life, we got the go and tell part. We, we heard that part. But here's the part that we, we often tend to neglect at the very bottom. And teach these new disciples. Teach them to obey all the commands that I have given you, all of them. Teach them all of them. He's given us authority. You see, there's no place in the New Testament where you can separate discipleship from relationship. It just doesn't exist. There's no place in the New Testament where you can separate discipleship from relationship. It was never designed to be institutional. It was always designed to be relational. And that's how we're going to win. That's how we're going to see the kingdom of God furthered together. And Jesus offers you a place in that. He offers you a place in the game. Because you were created for a purpose and we're here to help you find it and fulfill it. And that's why he put us all together. You know it means a lot to us that you would come here today and be a part of who we are. It really does matter to us more than you might realize. Sometimes I think we underestimate the power we have to influence people. You know, if you would look around your world, you'd be amazed at how many people would receive what you have to say to them. You could be a digital missionary. You don't have to post everything on Facebook or we're not asking you to go on your favorite social platform, but I would challenge you to look around your world. I guarantee you might have a friend, even in a different state or another part of the world, something was said today, whether a sermon, a prayer, a song, something was said that could mean a lot to them, man, send it to them. You'd be amazed at how much of a difference that could make.